You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Skeptic Check, our monthly look at critical thinking on Are We Alone? In February 2009, a huge storm hit the East Coast. Here in California, we can't imagine taking a snow day. But on the opposite coast, schools were closed, cities were buried under that white stuff, and they were shut down. If you like snow and lots of it, Washington, D.C. Residents in part of the Mid-Atlantic are bracing for a major winter storm. The storm created more than a picturesque winter wonderland. And aching backs for those who had to dig themselves out of that ice and snow. The frosty landscape was cited as evidenced by some commentators that the the Earth's temperature was not on the rise. Rumor has it that another storm could be headed this way next week. Global warming, where are you? We want you back. Scientists rarely use the term global warming anymore. They prefer climate change, which more accurately describes the complexity of what's happening to the Earth's climate system. I'm Stephen Schneider, and I'm a climate scientist at Stanford University. Stephen, when the big snowstorm hit the East Coast this winter, some commentators and politicians pointed to it as evidence to refute global warming. And, you know, on the face of it, it does seem to be a contradiction. I mean, if you hear that the Earth is warming up, yet you look out your window and you see this huge snowstorm, it's confusing. Well, of course it's confusing if you sit there and live from storm to storm. Uh, what about the fact that the Olympics took place in one of the warmest ever winters? That no more proves global warming than a cold winter in a snowstorm in Washington disproves it. It's nonsense. It would be like trying to figure out Willie Mays, a famous baseball player, shows you my age, lifetime batting average value, how he did in August of 1958. It's what we call in climate noise. It means absolutely nothing. In fact, what happens in one decade is virtually irrelevant because climate change is a 30-year or more process, and on that scale, it's inexorable. And there is confusion, I think, between weather and climate, and sometimes those get conflated. Well, indeed, we, the, the, the joke in, in the climate business is that uh, climate is what you expect and weather is what you get. So short-term variability can sometimes go completely against long-term trends, and that's why you have to average all around the world and over a long period of time. And when you do that, which is what the scientific community does because it's responsible in its statements, it finds unequivocal evidence of warming over the last century and a half, and very likely evidence of human activities creating it over the last 50 years. But this blizzard of controversy really found an audience because it came on the heels of an incident in November 2009 at the Climate Research Unit of England's University of East Anglia, during which more than 1,000 emails were hacked into, some going back 13 years. The private correspondence in which a handful of climate scientists discussed their data and talked about what trick they'd used to present it has been cited by global warming skeptics as evidence of collusion by scientists to manipulate their results and hoodwink the public. The incident, branded 
Climate Gate did nothing to tame the inflamed rhetoric on the talk show circuit. If your gut said, wait a minute, this global warming thing, it sounds like a scam. Well, I think you're seeing it now. We told you this was going on without proof because we listened to our gut. Well, I'm not sure what gut reactions people would have if they hacked into my computer and read my private emails. So how do we put the case of the East Anglia emails into perspective and judge what they may or may not reveal? Stephen Schneider again. If we took the emails of all the climate scientists in the world and looked at them, I'm sure you would find deep frustrations about being unfairly attacked by people that leads them to say things they would never say in public. If we took the emails of all the denier set out there who were making hay with this stolen stuff and uh, looked at what they said, my guess is it would be much worse. What people say in private and what people do in public and what they publish are different. It's one of the reasons we have privacy laws. The other thing is, even if it's true that everything alleged that these four to six people did was true, which it isn't, but even if it were, they're claiming this is refuting anthropogenic global warming and IPCC. This is complete nonsense. There are 450 scientists involved in writing the IPCC. These were four. And anthropogenic global warming, that means humans did it, was never based upon the argument in those emails about, uh, about what happened over the last thousand years. It's what we call fingerprints, all based upon modern data. So the whole thing is misframed. The whole thing is fraudulently claimed. And it absolutely amazes me that the media has been asleep at the switch in not telling the true story here. Well, let's say a little bit more about that, because some of the wording in these emails is confusing to people who are not scientists. One is the use of the word trick, as in the trick of adding temperatures to hide the decline of warming. Can you explain that to us? That yes, scientific- I can. Uh, first of all, if that were a public statement, there's no way they would have used that word because they would have understood that the public doesn't understand it as scientific jargon. Everybody in math and science uses the word trick to mean a clever simplification that allows you to solve an intractable problem that otherwise couldn't be solved. Their intractable problem was that this group was doing the due diligence of trying to calibrate records like tree rings, which are not temperatures, against actual temperatures. And they found in some part of Siberia that one of the recent tree ring records was showing a decline, that is a cooling, but the nearby thermometer records were showing a warming. Clearly, the thermometers were right. So the tree rings were miscalibrated. So in order to, quote, hide this decline, meaning that we don't want to sit there and put in something we know to be wrong, they put in the actual data. I don't see how putting in actual data is going to reduce the quality of the record. And as a result of that, they said that was a trick. Well, it is a trick. I mean, this is jargon. This is complete political framing. This is spin. And this is an attempt of the fossil fuel industry and the deniers of climate change to try to claim they have some high moral ground when what they're really doing is lying about the meaning of jargon. And what about this IPCC that's at the center of it all? IPCC sounds like some new multi-core high-tech computer. I just upgraded to an IPCC. But computers can't win the Nobel Prize for Peace, at least not yet. But the IPCC did. So, in the words of Butch Cassidy, who are these guys? The IPCC was created by about 150 governments in 1988 because they were sick and tired of hearing all the claimants of truth from all the special interests telling them that the world was going to hell in a handbasket or everything was going to be great. So they convened an international assessment, bringing hundreds of scientists together, getting thousands of review comments, and then having government 
oversight to make sure that it was all done on the up and up. So the IPCC consists of scientists who are doing climate change research? Not exactly, Seth. The IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, itself does not do the science. Rather, it assesses the research of thousands of academics working in climate science. Atmospheric chemists, glaciologists, oceanographers, biologists, and so forth. And it has the help of thousands of scientists to review all that scientific literature. Sounds cumbersome. It is, and that's why the IPCC releases its assessment reports, that's what it calls it, only every five to six years. Now, the first one came out in 1990, and the most recent was in 2007. So what it concluded in the very beginning was that there was a significant problem here, but we don't know how to assign it any confidence. By the last assessment in 2007, they had gotten sufficient additional evidence in the last 20 years from the actual thermometers of the world to say that warming since the uh, middle of the 19th century is unequivocal, and looking at the last 50 years, there's no explanation that is going to be able to explain what happened other than that humans are at least half the story. But when you have 400 people engaged and thousands of reviewers, there are going to be errors, and indeed there are errors, but the errors are a tiny, tiny fraction of their correct statements. And the evidence for climate change, does it solely rest on temperature data? No. The evidence for climate change is based on many factors. You can start with climate records, and people do. But climate records have problems. You have to remove the city thermometers because that gives you an artificial warming trend. But what happens when you move the thermometer out to the airport? That gives you an artificial cooling trend. All of that has to be corrected. The climate community is not stupid. It knows that. And it's been making these corrections for years. Then the land is only where most thermometers are. The land is is only a third of the world. What about the oceans? Well, there's lots of ocean temperature measurements. They are all warming also, not as much as the land, which, by the way, is forecast by the computer models. And as a result of that, you put all this together, and you see a pattern that IPCC labeled as unequivocal warming. But that's not enough. We can also say, well, if you don't want to use thermometers, If it's warming, shouldn't plants be blooming earlier in the spring and birds coming back earlier for migration? And that's the work of Terry Root and Camille Parmesan, two ecologists. And what they've shown is, yes, indeed, if you statistically correlate all the records of the change in ecological systems over the last 50 years, 80% of them are blooming earlier and the birds are coming back earlier. So you have all kinds of systems doing that. And if it were correct, The mountain glaciers are melting, and 95% of those are melting. The Arctic sea ice is melting at what appears to be an unprecedented rate, and Greenland is melting faster than anybody predicted. You accumulate this evidence. Nobody who is honest can reach a conclusion that there's nothing going on. They're simply cherry-picking the tiny exceptions and claiming exceptions disprove rules. That is not how science works. Science works on preponderance of evidence. So there are mounds of studies that point to a changing climate, but not all arguments by the skeptic center on global warming, climate change if you will, not happening. Detractors are increasingly arguing something else, that the Earth's temperature is rising, but that humans are not the cause, or they suggest the change will in fact be good for us in the long run. I think that the evidence is now quite conclusive that climate change, while it's certainly happening, that not much of it is anthropogenic, most of it is natural. Phil Chapman has been a guest on our show before. He was an Apollo 14 mission scientist and is now a geophysicist and consultant on energy and astronautics. In 2008, he wrote an op-ed for the newspaper The Australian that questioned the veracity of climate change science. We'll hear his case and then a response from Stephen Schneider. Phil, 
What convinces you that humans are not causing climate change? One of the assumptions in the theory of global warming is that carbon dioxide, when released into the atmosphere, lasts for a long time. But in fact, every time there was a nuclear weapon detonated back during the test program, it produced radioactive carbon in the atmosphere trace amounts of it and you could track that and people did track it because they were interested in fallout and what that shows is that that was a slug of carbon dioxide pushed into the atmosphere by the nuclear explosion and then we could watch it decay watch it disappear and its residence time in the atmosphere is 15 years not centuries as the intergovernmental panel on climate change says and what that means is that most of the carbon dioxide we emit is gone is absorbed by the oceans or by the plants' biomass within a decade or two. But but isn't the important point, uh, just because those particular carbon atoms disappear mm-hmm. one way or the other, get to, you know uh, buried in the ground or go into the ocean or whatever, uh, if others come into the atmosphere to take their place, I mean, it's just the total atmospheric uh, content of the, the, the carbon dioxide that's of importance, is it not? Well, the point is it's rapidly disappearing from the atmosphere. Therefore, you have to have a, a very large input of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere in order to maintain, to get the sort of growth we actually see in the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, we have to be, something is emitting much more carbon dioxide than we are. Okay, and what might that be? Do you have any idea? It's probably the oceans. What What is probably true is that the IPCC has it backwards, that the uh, the temperature is not rising because of carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide is rising because the temperature is rising. The, 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 the original sources is a change in climate changes in climate occur all the time, the surface of the, the ocean warms up a little bit, that releases carbon dioxide. So, in other words, is this general warming just some sort of localized effect? Uh, you know, over the centuries, sometimes it gets a little warmer, it gets a little colder. Is it just because we're, you know, we had an ice age 15,000 years ago? Why would we be getting warmer? Just coincidentally, when we start building lots of uh, cars and buses and trucks and The whatever. temperature has been fluctuating for millions of years sometimes by much more than we're talking about here. The, some of the causes are understood. They're to do with the, the changes in the orbit of the Earth and the inclination of the Earth's axis. But the whole subject is still a matter of research. We don't really know what causes changes in climate. But certainly the changes in climate in the past, in the past 10,000 years, have not been due to carbon dioxide because there wasn't any. We weren't emitting any. But the changes nevertheless occurred. As everybody now knows, the Climate Research Unit at the University of East Anglia in Britain has produced a lot of emails which turn out to be fraudulent. It's called ClimateGate. The guy who was in charge of that program, his name is Phil Jones, just recently he has come out and said that it's true that around 1000 AD it was much warmer then than it is now. And the question is, why was it warmer then than now? It certainly wasn't due to man-made carbon dioxide. Well, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and the vast majority of climate scientists are in agreement that the source of our current warming is man-made carbon dioxide. Now, Phil, you disagree. Where are you getting your data, and what are your qualifications? I'm a geophysicist. I'm not specifically a climatologist, but I do know something about the way the Earth operates. I get my information from reading the original papers. After it's been massaged by the IPCC, it comes out with a certain bias to it. Let me say that. For example, in the latest version of the IPCC journal reports, it points out that warming is going to cause all sorts of extra diseases and forest fires and things like that. It doesn't point out that warming will also limit cold spells, which are much more dangerous than warm spells. The whole 
tenor of the of the reports are uh, directed towards proving the thesis that we are causing global warming rather than doing a scientific analysis of the question. Why, why would they have an agenda? I can tell you why they have an agenda. It's because the way the system is set up under the Kyoto Protocol, if you're the leader of a, of a third world country and you decide you want to build a, a dam, for hydroelectric dam, for example, what you should do is you should say, I'm going to build, build coal-fired power plants. And then you agree not to build them and build the hydroelectric dam instead. And you can sell the permit to emit the carbon dioxide, which you've presumably saved, to some American company to let them emit carbon dioxide. It's a method of transferring money from the American consumer to third world countries. So you're skeptical that climate change is being caused by us. But the question is, what if you're wrong? What I would say is we need to pursue a no regrets policy. That is one in which... If climate change is occurring, we're doing something about it. But if anthropogenic climate change is not occurring, we haven't wasted a great deal of time and money. What that means is we need to develop new energy technologies because we need to get off foreign oil, for example. And if we concentrate on energy technologies, which also happen to be carbon neutral, then we have solved the problem of, of energy. At the same time, we, if, if in fact human carbon dioxide is a problem, we've limited that also. Phil Chapman, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Phil Chapman was the Apollo 14 mission scientist. He's now a geophysicist and consultant on energy and astronautics. Hold on to his argument, because we'll be back with a response from Stephen Schneider. Also, an update on the health of the world's coral reefs. You're listening to Skeptic Check, our monthly look at critical thinking on Are We Alone? Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Welcome back to Skeptic Check. We've just heard Phil Chapman explain why he believes that humans are not responsible for climate change. Now a response from climate scientist Steve Schneider. Steve, what is your response to Chapman's assertion that humans are not responsible for warming temperatures, in part because it was warmer in 1000 AD than it is now, and we weren't emitting pollutants then, so therefore human activity is out of the picture? seems like we have a serial error maker here. First of all, it wasn't much warmer. That is not what the vast bulk of the data show. This is the argument over the hockey stick, which is the University of Sanglia debate. So people have said that, you know, the last thousand years, the, the handle of the hockey stick is kind of wavy, but the blade, which is the warming of the last 50 to 100 years, sticks above it. Well, you can argue any one study, but the scientific community does what a responsible community is supposed to do. It replicates. So there are now 13 studies done by independent groups. Only one of them was the group associated with the University of East Anglia and Penn State. And all 13 have the blade, that means the temperatures of the last 50 years, way higher than the handle. So the assertion that the medieval period was warmer than now is simply not true. So that's number one. Number two, the argument is made it's been warmer before. Therefore, this is natural. Sorry, folks, there's no logical therefore there. And the reason for that is you have to know what the underlying cause is. 
Two Christmases ago, I had the world's worst fever. It was awful. I had a norvirus. It's one of these terrible intestinal things. I had 103 Fahrenheit for two days. I had to, you know, really work, not to have to go to the hospital to get undehydrated. So what does that tell us? It tells us if you truly believe that because the Earth was warmer 9,000 years ago and 125,000 years ago than now, therefore this is natural, that means you believe all planetary fevers are due to the same cause. That means your logic should say that every time I have 102 for three days or 103, it's the norvirus, right? Couldn't be intestinal, pulmonary, or malaria. It's complete nonsense. You have to look for cause. So we take the same models that we predict the future on, the global warming models, the same models, and we drive them with the conditions of 125,000 years ago, and it was you know, a couple of degrees warmer than now. And by then, the Earth was tilted more toward the plane of its orbit. That means more sunlight in the summer then than in the summer now. That should be warmer in the summer, and that would melt ice. That's exactly what happened. You drive the computer model, it predicts what happened. So not only does 125,000 years ago, when it was warmer than now, not refute global warming, it in fact strengthens it, because when you drive the models with the forces that were responsible for it, they're responding correctly. So those of us inside the scientific community, hearing these claims and watching these best-selling books written by people who don't know what they're talking about or their anti-government control ideology, they're just out there distorting, spinning, and people are believing them because they cannot understand that complex system science is not done by saying, oh, it was warmer then, therefore this is natural. That's complete crap science. It raises a question of who is qualified to comment on climate and climate science. Uh, Phil Chapman says he is a scientist, he's a geophysicist, and he has read many of the original papers himself, and that it was the IPCC, he charges, that massages the data with a certain bias. Nobody can say that it was warmer a thousand years ago without looking at the whole hemisphere, and he hasn't. He hasn't looked at the 13 studies that IPCC has studied in depth and discussed, or that the National Academy of Science wrote an entire report on. That's what scientists do. Being a geophysicist is not a qualification for knowledge about climate. You don't ask a geophysicist about climate. You ask a climate scientist. I mean, I get very annoyed about this when people tell me all PhDs are created equal and we should listen to all of them. Why should we listen to all of them? I mean, if, if you have a lung disease, are you going your cardiologist or you go and your pulmonologist. If you have cancer, you go to the oncologist. Doctors are not created equal. Scientists are not created equal. It's a fraudulent frame. Stephen Schneider is a climate scientist at Stanford University. More from him later in the show. We've been discussing the recent clamor and the skepticism regarding climate change science. But the science itself continues to advance despite it all. The Earth's climate system is complex, in part because it's very large, but also because the components of climate are strongly interconnected. The gases in the atmosphere and their temperature directly affect the oceans. And there's a lot of ocean. About two-thirds of Earth's surface is washed in this watery stuff. And coral reefs cover more than 100,000 square miles of them. That's about 1% of the ocean. Found mainly in the Red Sea, the Indian Ocean, and the Pacific Ocean, coral reefs have been called the rainforest of the sea for the vast diversity of living organisms they host. 1% of the oceans, but home to 25% of marine species. But coral reefs are fragile ecosystems. They're made of a crystalline form of calcium carbonate. Uh, that's CaCO3. By the way, calcium carbonate is also found on land, in chalk, for example. In the oceans, that calcium carbonate is eroding or not being formed. 
Coral reefs are disappearing, not just because ocean temperatures are warming, but because the chemistry of the water itself is changing. The oceans are becoming more acidic. Simon Donner, a geographer at the University of British Columbia, studies how climate variability affects aquatic ecosystems such as coral reefs. Molly talked with him after his presentation at the annual meeting of the AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, in San Diego. Well, we're here at the AAAS conference where you've just given a, a presentation about what's happening to the coral reefs around the world. I wonder if you could just give me an overview of what is happening to coral reefs. Well, coral reefs are under threat from a variety of different human disturbances, and it includes things like overfishing, things like destructive fishing practices and pollution. But climate change is also a growing existential threat to coral reefs. There are two real parts to it. The first is that rising water temperatures can cause these things we call coral bleaching events, which is that corals literally kick out the little algae that live in their tissue, and those algae are normally providing corals with most of their food. So if the temperatures get unusually warm, the coral kicks out the algae, and the coral's effectively being starved to death. And so the concern is that these events are going to become more and more frequent over time, and we'll end up with less and less living coral on the reefs around the world. Now this is the temperature of the oceans going up. We hear about the atmospheric temperature going up, but this is the ocean's temperature has also been going up. That's right. And so this is, um, there's evidence that, you know, since the 1800s, as the atmospheric temperature has been going up, ocean temperatures are also increasing. They're not increasing as quickly, but the reason for that is that the same reason it takes a while to heat up the water on your stove. Water has a higher heat capacity and it responds slower to the introduction of heat than air does. Now, the other problem that's happening to the coral reefs has to do with ocean acidification. That's right. And so independent of the actual changes in climate, just the simple changes in chemistry to the planet, the fact that we're putting CO2 in the atmosphere, is affecting the oceans and affecting coral reefs. About a third, about 30%, about a third of the CO2 that we emit from driving our cars and other things is dissolving in the ocean. And that sounds kind of crazy, but if you think about it, we've all had a carbonated beverage before. Well, you know, it's funny you should say that because truly, look what I brought you. (laughs) So you brought me a can of Coke. Why did I do that? Well, you brought, me a, you brought me a can of Coke, not because I'm a big soft drink drinker, but because Coca-Cola is water with uh, syrup in it and with carbon dioxide pumped into the water. I can hear that fizz. That fizz is carbon dioxide. Okay, but our oceans aren't becoming fizzy. You can take a sip, by the way, if you want. <laughs> well, the oceans aren't exactly becoming fizzy, but... We know it's really simple physics and chemistry that some of the CO2 we emit to the atmosphere ends up dissolving in the ocean. There's basically an equilibrium between the two. So the level of CO2 in the upper part of the ocean, the concentration is effectively the same as what you're going to get in the atmosphere. And the connection to the Coke is it's adding, you're adding dissolved CO2. In this case, it's Coca-Cola. It's highly concentrated. So our oceans are not turning into giant cans of Coke, but the, the chemistry is similar. Right, the chemistry is similar, and so what happens is CO2 dissolves in seawater and in the course of those reactions creates a few different of what we call carbonate species, so different forms of carbon in the ocean. And as the CO2 increases in the ocean, the balance of those carbonate species changes, and that brings about a couple effects. One of them is that we end up with more hydrogen ions, and hydrogen ions are the things that we use to record acidity. And so basically, as more CO2 dissolves in the ocean, the oceans are becoming slightly more acidic. Now, this doesn't mean that they're turning into battery acid or lemon juice, but it means that the pH level is going down and moving away from 
the sort of natural pre-industrial state that the oceans were in. Uh, at the same time, that change in the balance of the carbonate species affects any organism that uses carbonate to build their shells. And so that includes things like mollusks, but especially it includes coral reefs. So what is happening to the coral reefs then? Corals depend on a certain balance of the carbonate to build their skeletons. The skeletons that the corals secrete is calcium carbonate, it's limestone basically. And corals build these skeletons over time and the problem is as CO2 is going up in the ocean, corals ability to calcify is going down so they're going to be building their skeletons slower and as a result of these chemical changes the sediments that they create and the rock that they create is actually going to be dissolving a little bit faster and so the concern is if by the middle of the century or by possibly by the end of the century we could be at a point where coral reefs are basically on net dissolving. Many people don't have an opportunity to see coral reefs. I mean, you have to go to some exotic location, usually fly there, maybe scuba dive, or at least take a trip out into the oceans. So the question is, what really are we losing if these reefs, which are considered perhaps exotic specimens on the planet, what happens when they disappear? What do we lose? Well, you know, it's funny. Most of us, uh, if we live in North America, we probably know about coral reefs because of a vacation we took, right? And so we think of coral reefs as this exotic ecosystem. We're lucky to see it every once in a while. Maybe we see it at the aquarium. Maybe we see it in a Disney movie. And so they're aesthetically pleasing, nice to look at, but to you you and I, they might not seem that important. But actually, coral reefs basically help support the livelihoods of on the, it's on the order of hundreds of millions of people in the tropics. And they do that by providing food, fish, and other reef organisms. They do that by protecting the shoreline. And they do that by providing income, which is the money from tourism when people like us go down to go scuba diving on a reef. And so if the reefs are being affected by constant coral bleaching events, and they're being affected by acidification, and so there's less living coral and the structure is weaker. You start to lose all of those other organisms that depend on the reef. You start to lose the shoreline protection and all the communities that depend on the reefs are going to be affected. So what is the projection and what is the debate? What is it centered around when we talk about the fate of coral reefs? Where, where is the uncertainty? Well, with coral reefs, there are two main areas on the temperature side, I'll say there's two main areas of uncertainty. And one of them is simply the climate work. And this is a major area of uncertainty in all climate change impacts research. And it's the fact that the basics of the problem we know really well. This is old physics and chemistry. If we are wrong about how the greenhouse effect works and how CO2 is going to increase temperature on the planet, then we need to write, rewrite pretty much every physics and chemistry textbook. I mean, it's really basic science. But going from that to making specific predictions for the whole planet is complicated. And so to do that, we build these climate models. And so people get the mistaken idea that the model is the science, but it's not that. I mean, the models are built based on physics and chemistry equations that we know really well and that we use and people learn in high school chemistry and physics classes. But because of the limitations of computing power, the limits of our observed data, and just the complexity of the climate system, we can't make the predictions as perfectly for each individual spot on the planet, right? And so we have more general predictions, and we're also limited by not knowing what people are going to be doing in the future. What are our CO2 emissions going to be like? That really depends a lot on on sort of socioeconomic factors. And so that's one of the things that limits our uh, predictions for coral reefs, is that we can only give a coarse idea of what's going to happen to the temperature on each individual reef. So what if you took a business as usual scenario, that nothing changes, nothing changes, we just continue emitting CO2 the way that we are now, what could happen to these coral reefs? Well, under a business as usual scenario, 
basically within 30 to 50 years, we're looking at bleaching events being chronically frequent and meaning that they're happening so often that the live coral cover is just not going to rebound, right? And at the same time, we are looking at probably by the middle of the century, reefs getting towards a point where a lot of them are on net dissolving. I mentioned there are two areas of uncertainty, and so one's on the climate side. The other is, is on the biology of the corals. So we know pretty well now what sort of temperature stress will make corals bleach. But what we're only now trying to get a good, uh, solid grasp on is just how much flexibility there might be in that thermal threshold. So there's a few different mechanisms by which corals and the little zooxanthellae, the little algae that live in the coral tissue, a few mechanisms by which they could maybe become a little bit more thermally tolerant. And we have a, a decent idea of what the range of that tolerance is. We don't know if every coral can do it. We don't know if every part of the planet is going to be able to do this. But if we take an optimistic assumption about what the adaptation can be, then we look under this business-as-usual scenario, and bleaching doesn't become a chronic problem until the very end of the century. And so in that way, it's kind of like buying 50 years of time about that. What that does, it buys 50 years of time during which perhaps if we reduce greenhouse gas emissions, we could get off the business-as-usual scenario and avoid some of these disastrous forecasts for coral reefs. So even if these creatures can adapt, they have this thermal adaptive ability, your argument would not be to then forget about, the, about CO2 or greenhouse gases because these creatures will adapt. That's not what you would advise people to do. No, absolutely not. Basically, the very direct conclusion from our research, you know, and it's pretty simple physics and chemistry that we're working on, is that the adaptation that we see, may, which may be possible in some corals, can at best buy us time. It doesn't solve the problem. All it does is buy us time to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. We still have to reduce greenhouse gas emissions if we want to avoid these impacts on coral reefs. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Simon Donner is a geographer at the University of British Columbia. Yet with all the evidence of a changing climate, skepticism of the science persists. What the anti-global warming campaign and big tobacco have in common. Next, it's Skeptic Check on Are We Alone? We heard from climate scientist Stephen Schneider earlier about evidence that points to a changing climate. Now, we often refer to those who refute this evidence as climate change skeptics. In fact, we've used that term on this show. But Stephen Schneider says those who refute the evidence are not skeptics, they're deniers. A skeptic is all good scientists. Everything that we do is somewhat in doubt. After a while, you get well-established bits, and you're not going to redo experiments on gravity. So a skeptic is good scientist. But what's a denier? A denier is someone who does not admit that there's a well-established set of components, that there's a preponderance of evidence. So you're a skeptic until there's overwhelming evidence. But if you still maintain your position, you slip into the denier camp. But there are two groups of deniers circling the issue of climate change, says historian Naomi Oreskes, those among the public who deny that it's happening, and the organized group of industry leaders, politicians, and scientists who have a vested interest in keeping the analysis of the scientists in doubt. And they have history on their side because it happened before. Naomi Oreskes is the author of Merchants of Doubt, How a Handful of Scientists Obscured the Truth on Issues from Tobacco Smoke to Global Warming. Naomi, now one of the questions I've heard you pose in your talks about your research is, are people confused about climate science because they're ignorant or because people are trying to confuse them? 
Exactly. Well, the answer is it's because people have been trying to confuse them. I think a lot of times scientists make the mistake of being frustrated with the public and saying, well, it's a problem of scientific illiteracy, the public aren't educated, people need to study more science. But I think that's really misreading the situation. Many people do care about science. I've given a lot of public talks over the last couple of years where lots of people are really, really interested in this topic and want to understand it. But the fact is that really since the early 1990s, there has been a deliberate effort to confuse the American people about this subject. By whom? Who's doing this? Uh, Well, by a small group of people who are driven mostly by ideological purposes, and they are associated with think tanks that promote a free market ideology that are opposed to government regulation for environmental purposes. One of the leading organizations that, that I've studied is a group called the George Marshall Institute, which was actually founded by a group of physicists, a group of nuclear physicists who had been very active in the Cold War weapons programs, and they founded the Marshall Institute originally to defend the Strategic Defense Initiative, Ronald Reagan's Cold War, um, the so-called Star Wars program, but then later turned to attacks on environmental science, of which global warming then became the biggest. But at some point, attacking environmentalism during the 80s wasn't very effective because there was a backlash because the majority of American public felt like they were environmentalists. At some well, point. precisely, and that's why they took the strategy they did, because opinion polls consistently show that people care about the environment. People care about things like the national parks. People care about state parks. People care about being able to breathe clean air and drink clean water. So people care a lot about the environment. So if you attack environmentalism, you don't get a lot of political traction. But if you say, well, the science is uncertain, we don't really know if there's an ozone hole, we don't really know if there's acid rain, we don't really know what's causing global warming, then people say, oh, really, we don't know? Oh, I thought we did know. And then they say, well, that's interesting. And so it piques people's curiosity. So it's a very effective strategy because it taps into curiosity, which is a good thing. And then people say, oh, well, if we don't know, then obviously we should do more research. And so it's extremely effective as a tactic of delay that you convince people that it's too soon to make a decision about these issues. It's too soon to have a carbon tax. It's too soon to have a cap-and-trade system because we don't really know whether this is happening. Now, you've done this this study that has compared the global warming deniers uh, to those who oppose the safety of tobacco smoke way back when. Exactly. Well, I'm not just comparing them. The point of the book is that in many cases, they're the same people. In some cases, the exact same people. So what we show in the book is we track this whole strategy of promoting doubt back to the 1950s when the tobacco industry first made the decision, rather than accepting the scientific evidence that tobacco was dangerous and maybe diversifying into other products, which eventually they ultimately did do, but not initially, uh, that they would fight the science. And they would fight the science by promoting this strategy of doubt and Some of the same people who worked for the tobacco industry defending tobacco then subsequently became involved with attacking the science related to global warming and other environmental issues. Well, how are they doing that? What tactics are they using? Well, a variety of things. I mean, think tanks played a really big role. So the Marshall Institute is the most important one, but there are several other think tanks that have been involved. And if you Google climate change skepticism, you can find them yourself. So they're easy to find. But they promote the idea that the science is unsettled, that there's a big debate in the scientific community, that we don't really know the mechanisms. And these were all strategies developed to defend tobacco. Can you say a little bit more about how they promote it? I mean, they don't drop leaflets from airplanes. Well, um, something specific. Yeah, so a number of different kinds of things. So one strategy is to write reports which look like scientific papers. So often they are printed using fonts that are similar to scientific articles 
they often have footnotes, so they appear to be scientific research. And then they will give copies of this. Um, one of the strategies they did would be to send copies of these things to legislators all across the country, so to senators, to congressmen, to congressional staffers, to the White House, to really blanket, to kind of saturate the political arena with these pseudo-scientific articles, articles that appeared to be scientific but actually weren't. What did they say? And then they would say, they would claim, oh, you know, there's actually no climate signal, that even though some people have said that there's warming, that actually it isn't. Or a big one in the early 90s was to say that global warming was just caused by the sun, it wasn't caused by greenhouse gases. The ozone hole, to claim the ozone hole was actually caused by volcanoes. And that's towards legislatures and and, and so forth. That was right. the a government. Big one, so a big one was to approach politicians this way. A second one was to approach the media. So to send these reports and these articles to the mass media to make it seem like there was a big debate. So a kind of um, fabrication of debate so that journalists would think, oh, not everybody agrees about this. There's a debate. And so then when journalists would write about this, they would cite from these reports or they would quote these folks, and then they would present it as a, well, on the one hand, on the other hand. So again, the public becomes confused. But Naomi, this seems like this would have been effective in the early 80s and in the 90s, and and Ross Gelbspan wrote about this in Boiling Point, where he talked about um, this false debate that the media was forced to put forth. But this is the 21st century. We're now at least 30 years into the public acknowledgement of some of the science. Are these tactics still being used, and are they still effective? They are, and it is amazing to me. I have to say, I find it very sad that we needed to write our book, and I agree completely. I mean, much of what we talk about, Gelbspan showed many years earlier, was being used to attack climate science. So, yes, these tactics are still being used. The press apparently have no memory. The American people, well, Adlai Stevenson once said, the trouble with Americans is they haven't read the minutes of the previous meeting. And I think, unfortunately, that's true. Most of us, we don't remember or Maybe we weren't paying attention to the ozone debate, so we get fooled because we don't realize that these same tactics have already been used many times before. But you're saying scientists have had a hand in this. The subtitle of your book is not how a handful of big corporate types obscured the truth on issues from tobacco smoke to global warming. It's how a handful of scientists... Yes, exactly. And that's really what we think is kind of, in a way, the key thing about the book. And this is where it's different from Ross Gelbspan's work or some other people... One of the things that tobacco industry realized early on is that the American people are not idiots. Right? They may be distracted, they may be easily fooled, but they're not idiots. And if a tobacco industry executive gets up and says tobacco smoke is perfectly safe, most of us are smart enough to realize that that's probably not credible. But if you can hire scientists who will say, oh, well, the evidence is uncertain, the jury's still out, for most people that has much more credibility and so this was the important insight the tobacco industry had, and so they sought out scientists who would work for them. Now, in most cases, these scientists were not doctors, they were not epidemiologists, they were not oncologists, they were not molecular biologists. They were whoever they could find who seemed prestigious and credible. And so this is really crucial because it speaks to the credibility issue and it speaks to why people were confused by it, because now you have a scientist saying that the jury's still out, but... It's not the scientist who's really doing the work, and it's not a person who's actually an expert in that area. In, in the case of global warming, what did the scientists get out of it? Is it just is it financial gain? No. In fact, again, this is part of the story, so I hope people will read the book, because this is in some ways, I think, the really important thing for people to understand. It would be easy to understand if people did this for financial gain. Greed is a motivation that all of us get, right? <laughs> but it's more subtle than that, and it's really ideological. It's really about the consequences of global warming. What does it mean 
for our economy, for our way of life, for the role of government if global warming is real and we need to do something about it. And so really the crux of the story is about the role of the government in the marketplace. And the people we studied were what we call market fundamentalists, people who believed adamantly in the virtues of the free market and were opposed, implacably opposed to government intervention in the marketplace in any way, shape, or form. One was the corporate sector who did have a financial interest in protecting their products, whether it was tobacco or fossil fuels. And the other were a set of think tanks that shared that free market, laissez-faire, market fundamentalist ideology. I want to now turn to the role of media in shaping this debate and not let journalists, including myself, off the hook here. And I'd like to play two clips for you, one you're familiar with. It's from a local news station in Rhode Island, and they're previewing a piece that they're going to do on global warming. Now, in this case, we're going to read the transcription of what actually aired, but this is a verbatim transcription of what a newscaster at an NBC affiliate in Rhode Island had to say in November 2009. Now, what should listeners listen for in this? Yeah, I mean, one of the problems that we've seen in a lot of the media coverage is the framing of global warming as a big debate. And it's often said that conflict makes good copy, that if you don't have a conflict, you don't have a story. Now, from NBC 10 News. Today on 10 News, time for special assignment, global warming, fact or fiction. If it is happening, what's the cause? And what effect will it have on coastal areas like here in southern New England? If you listen to the proponents, the atmosphere is warming, the glaciers are melting, and sea levels are rising because of atmospheric pollutants like carbon dioxide man is putting into the air. And if we don't act now, they say the changes to civilization will be catastrophic. But if you listen to the opponents, they say man is not the cause of global warming, it's the sun. And all the hype and hysteria is to keep scientists awash in their $50 billion worth of research grants they've received from government and corporations over the past two decades. What's really going on? As I said, we read from a verbatim transcription of what actually aired. Naomi, what's your take on it? Well, it's a great clip because it's just classic. I mean, it's just textbook, and it shows everything that's wrong with media coverage. So first of all, the whole framing of this as fact or fiction, as if scientists truck in fiction, right? So it's a ridiculous way of framing it. I mean, the real question is, what do we know about climate change? What do we need to know? How do we respond to those uncertainties in terms of framing public policy? And then to say, if it's happening, I mean, that... I have to say, it gives me heartburn because we know that global warming is happening. That's not a debate. And then, and then the other thing that was amazing in that little clip, the announcer says, if you listen to the proponent, well, that's an amazing thing. No one's a proponent of global warming. Nobody wants global warming to happen. Climate scientists are not proponents of global warming. Climate scientists are proponents of evidence. They're proponents of research. They're proponents of understanding the natural world. So to frame them as proponents of global warming and then say that the other people are opponents of global warming, I mean, that's just mind-blowing to me. Well, on the subject of climate scientists, let me play a response from uh, Stephen Schneider on how responsible the media has been and on the role given to outliers, these people mm. who, these deniers of climate science. If you want to give the full spectrum of opinion, then you better say that the IPCC is viewed as ridiculously conservative by Greenpeace and the deep ecology movements, they view it as vastly understating the seriousness of the problem. Why aren't they getting equal time in those media stories out there on the fringes to these deniers who are not part of the process? So if the media is going to cover this right, then make it a bell curve, put in the wild outliers on the end of the world, put in the wild outliers on the other side, but tell the public that they're wild outliers and they don't represent mainstream opinion. Naomi, what do you think of Stephen Schneider's assertion that the full spectrum, truly the full spectrum, is not being represented here by 
by journalists. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think there's two things. I think, first of all, the centroid of opinion is not being accurately represented. So too much attention is being given, to, as, as Steve Steiner says, to outliers who really don't represent the view of the vast, vast majority of climate scientists. You have thousands of people who have been involved in doing scientific research over the last two decades, and 99.9% of them accept absolutely that global warming is happening and that one of the major causes is human activity. But that's not reflected in the way the media presented. The media presented as if, as we just heard, the proponents, the opponents, as if it's sort of equally weighted, and as if the opponents were scientists when, in fact, in the vast majority of cases, they're not. So the media presentation is extremely misrepresentative of what's actually going on. But also, I think Steve raises a very interesting point, that when they do present outliers, that's very imbalanced. So they present the outliers who don't believe in global warming or deny the human fingerprint, but they don't present the outliers on the other side, which are the people who think that we've vastly underestimated the threat. So Steve is right. If they're going to have somebody from the Competitive Enterprise Institute blaming the sun, they really ought to have somebody from Greenpeace saying it's a massive catastrophe, West Antarctica is on the verge of breakup, and we're going to look at six meters of sea level rise. That would be balanced. It wouldn't be necessarily serving the public interest to emphasize those extreme views, but it would be balanced. So we've been talking about all the different ways that the the public has been confused, understandably, about what's happening to the climate. That is the role of what journalists need to do. We all need to be more vigorous. Let's talk finally about the role of the scientific community, because I take it that you feel that the scientific community has not been effective in how they've responded to this campaign to confuse the public. They have not been getting their message out. What should they be doing that they're not doing? Right. Well, it's not just my opinion that the scientific community has not been effective. It's the evidence shows it, right? The very fact that so many people are confused that, you know, nearly half of Americans think that there isn't global warming or think scientists are still arguing about it shows there's, you know, that's my scientific reading of the situation. The evidence shows that the scientific community has not been effective in getting their message out. And I think the leadership of the scientific community needs to step up to the plate. Just to press you on that last point, what does it mean to step up to the plate? Does it mean to go in front of cameras, issue responses, send out faxes? How do, how do scientists... I think all of the above. I think scientists mm-hmm. have to look for opportunities to communicate with the public and take advantage of those opportunities wherever they are. Thank you very much for talking with us. Thank you. It's a pleasure speaking with you. Naomi Oreskes is an historian at the University of California at San Diego and the author of Merchants of Doubt, How a Handful of Scientists Obscured the Truth on Issues from Tobacco Smoke to Global Warming. And that's it for our show. We thank Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, Sandra Chung, and Jay Weiler for their help. Also, the NASA Astrobiology Institute and the SETI Institute, where looking for life elsewhere in the universe requires critically thinking about scientific evidence. You've been listening to Skeptic Check, our monthly look at critical thinking on Our Way Alone. You can browse our archive and even listen to this show again, Climate Clamor, at our website, radio.seti.org. It's Skeptic Check. And you can take our word for it.